If we're in Galatians chapter 5, we've already gone through chapters 1 to 4. So if you're new to the series, no problem. I'll do just enough uh, review to sort of catch you up. And fortunately for us, chapter 5 as well as chapter 6 that we'll do the next time we're together, um, they sort of stand on their own. They're, they're very uh, exhortational, encouraging. They don't require a lot of understanding of the previous material. So I will reference back to it. But we're going to have a lot of fun today in Galatians 5 and 6. And I'm super excited. I ordered a brand new Bible because my other Bible was dying. And so uh, I've got my, this is the first I've got both of them up here because I felt a little insecure about not having this Bible. So uh, one's New King James and the other one's a New International Version. So anyway, we'll be in Galatians chapter 5 today. Let's start with prayer. And we're just going to go through this verse by verse. And there are some incredible insights here and some amazing encouragement. And I know you're going to really love it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, bless us now as we turn our attention to you. As we orient ourselves to you, we know that in Christ and in the Spirit, you have already oriented yourself to us. Father, of this there can be no question. You have showered your goodness upon us. You have shown us your goodness. And Father, now we merely respond. We reflect back to you the love that you have so graciously lavished upon us. And so, Father, be with us now as we spend time in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we anticipate your presence and your blessing because you have promised it. And you're the kind of God that keeps your promises. Now, thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, I'll look down here at the timer. Just maybe I'll spend five minutes here or a little less on review just to sort of catch ourselves up. So Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, southern Turkey, uh, what we would call today Turkey. So he's writing to a series of churches. These are the churches that Paul has visited in his missionary journey, his first missionary journey described by Luke in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And so he goes to churches like Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and Antioch. And Paul spent the better part of 18 months traveling around these churches and uh, preaching the gospel. And the sense that we get from Paul's information and Luke's information in the, gospel, uh, in the book of Acts is that these were largely Gentile congregations, but with some significant Jewish influence and presence. We don't know the exact percentage breakdown. Uh, if we had to hazard a guess, we would probably say that the time that Paul writes Galatians, they might have been something like 40% Jewish, 60% Gentile, or 30% Jewish, 70% Gentile. These are just guesses of course, but we know that there were Jewish populations scattered all throughout Rome because of the diaspora, and that Paul writes with a certain sense that at least some of the people that he's writing to have a basic familiarity with Jewish history, Jewish teaching, etc. And so Paul is writing here, this is the first of Paul's letters that he writes, written probably in about AD 49, not earlier than AD 48, and probably not later than AD 50. The reason we know that is the Jerusalem council that's going to take place in Acts chapter 15 happens in AD 50, and the book of Galatians was written, the letter to the Galatians was written prior to that. So sometime in and around AD 48, 49, this is early Paul, this is raw Paul, and Paul is writing the book of Galatians, as we've already noted, in a sort of heated haste. He's, he's angry, he's urgent, he's frustrated, he knows that people have come in behind him to undermine not only his own apostolic ministry and calling, but to understand the message, undermine the message that he's preaching. And so uh, the, the book of Galatians has a certain feel to it. And we're going to get a, sh a feel for that today, in fact, where Paul is going to say probably the strongest thing that he says in any of his epistles in Galatians chapter 5. But we have to get the sense here of an urgent 
pastoral concern, written in haste, written in heat, written in frustration. And we're going to get a real feel for the shape of that. So what's happened? What's the basic story? Well, the basic story is near as we can put the, the pieces together. And remember that what we're always doing in reading an ancient document, particularly a letter like this, is we're listening into one half of the phone conversation. We've all been in that situation where somebody else in the car, you're driving with somebody in the car, they pick up the phone. And they're talking. And you can't hear what the other person is saying, but you're trying to piece the conversation together based on what you can hear. And you not only are hearing the actual verbiage or the language, you're hearing the tone. You can sense that there's an agitated tone, a sincere tone, a sad tone, an expressive tone. And what you would try to do, in, in fact, you just do it instinctively, reflexively. You're just trying to figure out what the other person on the other end is saying. That's what we're always trying to do when we're reading Paul's letters, because we don't know the exact circumstance and situation into which Paul was writing, but we can sort of pull the pieces together and get a feel. Well, what was happening? Fortunately for us, at least in the case of the book of Galatians, perhaps one of the easiest of Paul's books to do this, we know that there was trouble in Antioch. Now, this is not Antioch in Turkey that I was just mentioning. There were several cities in the ancient world called Antioch, named after Antiochus, Epiphanes. So, what? this is the Antioch that's just about 100 miles to the north of Jerusalem, and it's the place where the first Christian church was planted. You, this is described in Acts chapter 11. This is where it says they were called Christians first in Antioch. Well, why were they called Christians? Literally, followers of the Messiah is what that means. The reason they were called Christians is that you couldn't call them Jews. These were Gentile believers in the Messiah, and they didn't know what else to call them, and so they called them Christians, followers or devotees of the Messiah. Well, what had happened was, after that initial church had been sort of planted there, described in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas was sent by the church in Jerusalem to just go up and have a look around, sniff around a little bit, see what's going up there with this novel new innovation, which was a Gentile church. That is to say, a Jewish Messiah, Jewish prophets, Jewish scriptures, and now a Gentile church. Nobody knew what to do with this. And so Barnabas goes up at the request of the church in Jerusalem to just sort of sniff around and see what's going on. He goes in there. The Bible says in Acts chapter 11 that what he sees in Antioch makes him glad. He's just like, wow! In fact, the text literally says in Acts chapter 11 that he saw the grace of God. Now I want you to think about that. He saw the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God? Well, I'll tell you how you see the grace of God. You see what I'm seeing right now. You see people of various cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities and languages all coming together to worship the one true God and His Messiah. That's seeing the grace of God. People being transformed, people being converted, people becoming honest, people being followers, devotees of the Messiah. And so Barnabas went in, he saw, Luke says, the grace of God, and he immediately thought, I know just the guy for this situation. And he travels just about another 120 miles to the north and then to the west. And he goes to a town called Tarsus, where he finds Saul of Tarsus, who was a tent maker and had almost certainly reverted back to being a tent maker. Paul tells us this in, in Galatians 1 and 2. Well, he gets and he says, Paul, I got something you've got to see. He wasn't, uh, he didn't know about the church in Antioch. And so Barnabas brings him back and, and Paul and Barnabas remain there for about 18 months, ministering to this new novel unique innovation, which was a Gentile church. What? Nobody quite knew what... And there was certainly Jewish influence there. Well, here's what ends up happening in the church in Antioch. 
The people were eating together, they were fellowshipping together, they were easily and freely mingling across social lines, across religious lines, and across that most important of lines, the Jew-Gentile divide. And they were all eating together, they were mingling together, they were fraternizing together. It was all fine and good, Paul describes, until one time Peter had also come up to visit, and he was doing, the, he was, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans, and when in Antioch, do as the Antiochians. And so he was easily and freely mingling with the other uh, participants that were there, including the Gentile participants. And this was all fine and good right up until the point where James, well not James, but people from James, from Jerusalem, arrived. So these would have been what we might call heavy sevies, right? The people that show up, and these are believers in the Messiah, but they are almost certainly of a Pharisaical persuasion. And when they arrive, Peter politely excuses himself, says, hey, I just need to go visit with some of my friends that have arrived. So then just imagine the scene there in the fellowship hall. There's probably a hundred people there. Let's say it's a 70-30 Gentile-Jew split. Peter excuses himself, goes and sits down with the heavy sevies who have come from Jerusalem, who would have been absolutely appalled at the easy, free mingling that was taking place across these ethnic religious lines. And so Peter excuses himself, goes and sits down with the heavy sevies, and then everybody else, all the Jews in the room, those that were part of Peter's party, start following along, following suit. Even Barnabas, Paul says with great frustration, you can almost hear him spitting when he says this, even Barnabas, he says, was carried away with Peter's hypocrisy. So Paul looks up and he sees something that he cannot believe and he cannot accept. He sees all of the Jews sitting together, speaking no doubt Aramaic, which would have been an unfamiliar language to the remaining 70 or 60% of Gentiles that were there, and all the Gentiles sitting together. So all the Gentiles over here, all the Jews over here, and Paul says there's no way this is not going to fly. This is not what he calls in Galatians 2, the truth of the gospel. Paul literally says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... Now, this is such an incredible idea, you guys, and I want you just to get a feel here. It's not like something was being said. Like, if, if I said to you, oh, I went to such and such a church, and they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, you would almost certainly assume that something had been said, that somebody was teaching some heresy, that somebody had said something that was not correct. Nothing was being said here. Something was being done. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, that what was happening there with, with Peter and the others was that they were not being straightforward or plain or accurate about the truth of the gospel. Well, what was the truth of the gospel? Well, so glad you asked. The truth of the gospel from Paul's perspective was that Jesus had now made a new and radical and wonderful way to get access to what we've called the family of God or the table of God. Everybody gets access in the same way through the Messiah's faithfulness. This is how Jews get access and this is how the Gentiles get access. And so it makes sense that people could easily, freely, mingle together, eat together across these ethnic, religious, social relig uh, lines. And so that division, Paul says, that's not the gospel, that's not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And so he writes a series of very persuasive, tightly argued points in Galatians, 
basically beginning in verse 16 all the way down through the end of 4. And that's basically his case. Paul has made his case here, and we will reference back to it. We've already done it in the series. But when we get to Galatians 5 and 6, we find Paul now moving on from the case that he's made, a very persuasive case where he describes Abraham and Hagar and Sarah and the covenant and all of this. And now he's coming to the implications of the case that he's made. How should we behave in light of the fact that I have more than made my biblical case that Messiah has created a new, better way to get access to the family of God. God doesn't have two families, a Jewish family and a Gentile family. He has one family. Those that, like Abraham, put their faith in Yahweh and in Yahweh's Messiah, Jesus. Okay. So now we're in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. That's all of our intro. Paul says... Um, I'll read here in the NIV. I've got both, both translations here, and I really prefer the modern translations of 5.1. They're, they're quite a bit better. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What an incredible thing to say. Paul says here, you have been set free to be free. Freedom is a value in and of itself. Like Freedom is not just a means by which we do the right thing or we act responsible or we love in unselfish ways. Freedom is a value in and of itself. And we all know this instinctively. We know it because, for example, and I've used this illustration before, if you are ever just walking down the street and somebody else was walking toward you, and, and you, you don't know them, they don't know you, say you're in an unfamiliar area, an unfamiliar town, if you're just walking down the street, if somebody reached out and grabbed your arm and started trying to drag you, just to pull you, you don't, you don't know them, you, you don't know anything, you would, in, you would instinctively and reflectively, you'd resist. Because you know that to be pulled, to be forced, to be compelled to do something that you don't want to do is not right. It's unhuman. And so you, we all know instinctively and reflexively that to be free is, is as, the, as the founders of the United States said, and we're going to celebrate in just a few, I guess tomorrow, that, that there are these inalienable intrinsic, incorrigible things that we know about the nature of reality. And one of them is that liberty and freedom are the way we were meant to live. Jesus would say it like this. If the Son will make you free, you'll be really free. Amen. We get little hints that this is sort of God's governmental policy, freedom, governing by freedom, not prohibition, even in the Garden of Eden, where God says to Adam and Eve, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat of that one. Now, in your mind's eye, let's just imagine how many trees were there then that they could have eaten from. Let's say a thousand. Let's say a thousand. So if that's the case, you know, you can just imagine Adam going down there in the garden and itemizing every tree. Yeah, but God, can I eat of this tree? Yes. Can I eat of this tree? Yes. Can I eat of this tree? Yes. There would have been one thousand yeses and a single no. So this tells us that right there in Genesis, God's primary mode of governance is not by prohibition, but by permission. A thousand yeses to a single no. God made Adam and Eve to be free. Jesus came when he was healing people, whether from leprosy or from disease or whatever, the blindness. He was literally setting them free. He was making them fully human. God didn't make us to be crippled. God didn't make us to be bent over like the woman in Luke chapter 13. God didn't make us to be blind. He made us to be free. And so Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. You're free. Now live free. Now we've already said back in Galatians chapter 4, and this is going to come up again and again here, and I'll point them out to you, 
In the mind of Paul, in fact, in the mind of any first century Jew, the Exodus is never far out of their frame of reference. It, the, the Exodus is always immediately accessible, right? Like I suppose an analog would be that for Seventh-day Adventists, the Sabbath is always nearby. It's always close. You can always reference it, circumstance, situation. You can just reach over and grab, or maybe the second coming. It's always close. We could be having a conversation about politics or whatever, and you could just say, well, Jesus is coming soon. We could be having a conversation about some tragedy. Well, Jesus is coming. We'd always just grab it and move it into the conversation very easily, very readily. We're Adventists. Okay, that's the way that Jews are and were with the Exodus. The Exodus is always right there. The way that Jews self-identify, the way they think about themselves and think about the world around them, is that they are God's covenant community that have been called out of slavery, out of bondage, into freedom to live as a free people, as God's covenant community. And so when Paul says here, you are free. For freedom Christ has set you free. He's saying, don't go back to Egypt. You are free. We've said this before and we'll just note it again, that when God gives the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 20, He doesn't just begin by saying, you shall have no other gods before me, the first of the Ten Commandments. What He says is, I am Yahweh, your God, that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the, does anybody know this? Out of the house of bondage or the house of slavery. Now you don't need to have any other gods before me. In other words, the law was given to a free people. They were already free. The blood of the Passover lamb had already been spilt a month before. They had already walked through the Red Sea and experienced what Paul would say later is baptism. They're a free people. God doesn't give them the law in order for them to become holy, for them to become sanctified, for them to become free. They are free. They're no longer in Egypt. They're now at the base of Sinai. And God gives the law, the instructions, in fact, the promises to a free people. And he says, this is how you live free. Paul is simply here echoing that very idea. For freedom Christ has set us free. Verse 1. He says, therefore, don't go back and be entangled or burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is Exodus language. Paul's already been using Exodus language in Galatians 4. So what would be the equivalent of going back in the church that Paul was writing to, the churches in Galatia, going back to slavery? Well, it would be going back to the idea, the notion, that the way that you get access to the table of God, the way that you get access to the family of God, is through Torah keeping. You get access by Torah, including, but not limited to, circumcision. This is how you get access. If you want to sit at this table, the table that all the Jews were sitting at, literally, there in Antioch, you need to be circumcised. You need to become Jewish. And, and this question of how Jewish does a Gentile believer have to become in order to be a believer in the Jewish Messiah, that was the central question of the early church. That's what the Jerusalem Council was about. Well, wait, what do we do with all these Gentiles? There was a rapid influx of Gentile believers due in no small part to Paul's missionary journeys around the larger Mediterranean world. And they said, what, what do we do with these people? What do we do with the people in Galatia and Macedonia and all the way as far away as Athens and Corinth and even eventually Rome? What do we do with them? How Jewish must they become? And Paul's answer is, not at all. They don't need to become Jewish at all because the way that we get access to the table of God and the family of God is not through Torah keeping, it's through the Messiah's faithfulness. Messiah has kept Torah. Messiah has been faithful. And you can see that's exactly where Paul is going to go. 
So now we're in verse 2. Mark my words, Paul says. I, Paul, Paul here exercises a little bit of that apostolic authority that had been called into question. You get to see him sort of standing up straight, putting his shoulders back here a little bit, right? He says, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, the word let here is an important word because it communicates a kind of passivity. If you let yourself... Somebody's urging this upon them. We already know this from Galatians 1, and Paul's going to say it here again. Someone is saying, yes, what Paul taught was okay, and yes, Jesus, but also. So it's not Jesus, period. It's Jesus and. Jesus and Torah. Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and. And Paul says, here's the problem. If you acquiesce, if you capitulate and let yourself be circumcised, he says, then what good is Jesus to you? Just flip back very briefly to Galatians chapter 2, very briefly, and just remind yourself of verse 21. This is the climax of Paul's critique of Peter there in the dining room in Antioch. This was the thing that Paul concluded with. He says to Peter, Peter, I'm in, I'm in Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God. If righteousness comes through Torah, then what is Jesus doing on the cross? Or Christ died in vain. You, you see the point here? Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. If, if I'm... If I'm a member of the family of God, if I get access to God by my Torah keeping, then what's Jesus doing hanging on the cross? You follow me? This is his whole argument. It's been his argument from the beginning that Jesus has introduced a radical new innovation. Jesus alluded to this when he said parables like, no one can put new wine into old wineskins or it will burst the wineskins. You must put new wine into... New wineskins. Jesus was introducing something new, something fundamentally different. And this is where people get tripped up. Not something fundamentally different than the Old Testament, but something fundamentally different than the misunderstanding of the Old Testament that first century Judaism had presented. Ah! So when Jesus shows up, he says there's going to be a new way of doing Judaism. And that new way, again, is that we get access to the family of God and the table of God, not by my Torah keeping, not by my circumcision, in fact, not by anything that I will do. My access to the covenant community will be through the faithfulness of the Messiah. So far, so good? So this is what he says there in verse 2. If you let yourself be circumcised, well then, what good is Jesus? Okay, verse 3, he continues. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Well, Paul has already said this. Look back at Galatians 3, verse 10, just to remind yourself. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Look at what he says. He says, For as many as are of the works of Torah are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in most things. What does it say? All things which are written in the book of the law to do them. He's quoting here from Deuteronomy 27. Paul's argument is very simple. You, it's not a salad bar, right? You don't just get to go in and say, you know, I'll have a little, I'll have some mushrooms, I'll have some cherry tomatoes, no to the spinach, I'll have a little cabbage, no to the baby carrots, and I'll have some corn. If you're going to go all in on Torah, you're going to go all in on Torah. So you can't just say, well, I'll be circumcised, but I won't. And I will this, but I won't that. Paul says, the reason that getting circumcised, capitulating to these agitators that were saying it's Jesus plus, the reason that capitulation would lead you away from Jesus is, eventually it's not just this and this, and it's everything. 
Well, nobody has kept Torah. Except for one, Jesus, of course, which is Paul's whole point, that he has been faithful. So there in verse 3 he says, Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, he is obligated to obey all of Torah. You who are trying to be justified, declared in the right by Torah, you have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. Well, this makes perfect sense. The language here of falling away, in my mind, as a long-time uh, rock climber and as somebody who, who spends a significant amount of his time thinking about rock climbing, this is the, you know, the idea here is, is that you're almost like you're, you've just summited. You've just accepted Jesus. You've summited. And then at the wrong moment, you go to grab what you think is a handhold or what, step on what you think is a foothold and you fall away. You fall off of the great mountain of grace trying to go back to another way of doing things, which in this case was Torah. Going back to Torah, going back to recommending ourselves to God and to His family by Torah faithfulness, by covenant faithfulness. And Paul says, if you do that, well, then you have fallen from grace. Right? You have fallen off the very summit. Verse 5, for through the, and this is one of the coolest verses, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. It's a fairly complicated verse. I'll read it to you here in the King, New King James as well. That was the NIV. The King James, New King James says, uh, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Okay, this idea of waiting and hoping for something that has not yet happened, Paul will further tease out in Romans chapter 8 which I just mentioned to you that we did an eight-part series on Romans 8. And Paul over and over again in Romans 8 says, we eagerly wait, we eagerly wait, we eagerly wait. For what? He says the redemption of our bodies. The problem that we have right now is that we are living in a parallel reality, okay? And this is sometimes referred to by theologians as the already not yet motif. Something has happened, and yet it has not yet happened in its fullness. So what has happened is that we are now the sons and daughters of God. Can somebody say amen? And we have been redeemed. But we also live, as Paul says back, just maybe glance back briefly at Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Just glance back briefly, just so that you can see that these are themes that Paul has been arguing at the whole time. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. In the mind of Paul, the world in which we're living right now is a world in which we are trapped in between two equally valid and equally important realities. Number one, we are the family of God. We are living in a saving relationship with Jesus and with God through the Messiah. Y yes, all of that is true. We are the sons and daughters of God. But we also live over here in this reality where, and Paul will tease this out greater in Romans 7 and 8, our bodies don't always do what we want them to do. There's still temptations and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and tragedy and cancer and all kinds of problems still happen in this reality. So we exist simultaneously, as it were, in two realities. So we are already the sons of God, but we are not yet fully the sons of God in terms of the manifestation of that. So this is true, but we still eagerly wait for the thing that we're hoping for. Nobody thinks this is the... I mean, nobody thinks this thing that's happening right now in this room with aching backs. You were talking, Rick, about the, you know, you pulled up all these trees and now you... I mean, nobody thinks that the world that we're in right now is the thing. We all know that this is a shadow of the thing. It's an anticipation of the thing. This is the present evil age. And so Paul says, while we 
live trusting to the Messiah and to His faithfulness, we hope and we wait and we anticipate what is coming. Living in that simultaneous reality of already and yet also not yet. Paul then in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Or, better still, faithfulness expressing itself through love. Now, here's such a cool thought on this. He's saying here, when Paul says it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that counts, what he's saying is, your Jewishness, your ethnic Jewishness, i.e. descendancy from Abraham, doesn't get you any proximity to God. John the Baptist said this on the banks of the River Jordan. Remember that? When the people were coming out to hear the preaching of John the Baptist, and he said, don't say within yourselves we have Abraham as our father. I'm telling you the truth. God can raise up children unto Abraham from what? From these stones. So, so he says here, your Jewishness does not get... And Jesus drove at this again and again and again in his, in his ministry. Jewishness does not automatically get you access into proximity to God. But he also says, neither does, neither does being uncircumcised. There's nothing special about that either. Like, oh, well, me, I'm, I came in through the Messiah. Everybody comes in through the Messiah. If you're an ethnic Jew like Paul was, you come in through the Messiah's faithfulness. If you're a convert to, uh, to uh, Christ and you're turning out of paganism, you come in through Messiah's faithfulness. And he says, so neither circumcision nor uncircumcision of, amounts to anything. It's of no value. But then he says, but faith that works through love. Or again, faithfulness working through love. Now, what does that sound like? Faithfulness working through love. Well, it sounds like Jesus. Just glance back at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Probably the best known verse in the whole book of Galatians. If I started quoting it, probably most of you could finish it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with the Messiah. It is no longer I who live, but the Messiah lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, watch this, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That phrase, gave himself, is a crucially important phrase in Pauline theology. To, to love is to give yourself, to extend yourself, even, as Jesus himself said, to sacrifice yourself. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Paul will say this again and again. I'll give you another one. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. When you stand or stood at the altar and you commit yourself to your spouse and your spouse commits themselves to you, what you're literally saying is, I give myself to you. I give myself to you. That's faithfulness working through love. That's the Messiah. And so what's on display here is he's saying that the, the way that we get access to the table of God, to the family of God, to the covenant community of God, is not through circumcision or the absence of circumcision. It's through this messianess, if I can turn it into an adjective. That, that God's people will be identifiable as the kinds of people who extend themselves, who risk themselves, who give themselves for others. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the well-known love chapter. Love seeks not its own. It's outward focused. It's generous. It's magnanimous. It's kind. It's fruitful. It's big. It's large-hearted. 
it's not just the getting the, you know, the, it's not a haircut, right? It's not just a little trimming of, you know, the male genitalia that gets you act. There's bigger things that are going on here. And the bigger thing that's going on is the way that we get access to the table of God is by trusting in Messiah's faithfulness and then living like Messiah lived. Faith or faithfulness that works through love. Now we're getting some momentum. How about verse 7? Paul here, in verses 7 down to verse 12, Paul mixes a bunch of metaphors together, which Paul does a lot. You know, like in modern writing or modern speech, you'd say the mixing of metaphors is generally a bad idea. Paul mixes at least two, probably three or more metaphors in this next section. You'll see them as we go. Paul says, uh, he starts off, you were running a good race. Well, there's a metaphor for you. We'll just lead with that. Hey, you were running a good race. Now, the, the New King James is not as good here. I'll read it to you in the New King James. It says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth. I don't know what translation you're reading, but hindered is not strong enough. The root word here for hindered or delayed or obstructed is actually has the same root word as to cut. And so the NIV gets this a little better. Let me read it to you here. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Who cut in on you? This is a purposeful pun that Paul is going to use because the whole conversation here is about cutting stuff off. The whole conversation here is that about, in some sense, people are trying to advocate for the idea that in the cutting is the faithfulness. In the cutting is the righteousness. In the cutting is the access. And so the New King James misses this pun on words. Uh, words. It says, you were running a good race. Who hindered you? Okay, that's true. But literally it means to cut in line, to elbow you out of the way, to cut. Now you watch where Paul goes with this. It's actually pretty provocative, as I said in the introduction. It's the strongest thing that Paul says probably in any of his letters. And we'll get there in just a few verses. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Now here again, our good Seventh-day Adventist sensibilities will immediately have us say, oh, obeying the truth. Yeah, but what is obeying the truth? Well, we've already seen within the context of Galatians that when Paul looked up and he saw all the Gentiles sitting over here and all the Jews sitting over here, he said that was not straightforwardness about the truth. The truth is not some abstract theological construct. The truth is that God has one family made up of Jews and Gentiles and that we all get access by trusting to the faithfulness of the Messiah. That's the truth. And so he says, man, you were running really well, but somebody elbowed you out. They cut in line, and they're preventing you from obeying the truth, from living in this multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational community that is the Messiah's new people. Right? He's already said back in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. You're all one in the Messiah. So who cut in on you? Now watch, the metaphors continue to flow here. Verse 8, that kind of persuasion does not come from him who calls you. That's another little oblique reference there to the Exodus. Calling them out of Egypt. Calling them out of bondage, out of slavery. And you'll see he'll come back to this in just a second. This idea doesn't come from him who calls you. Verse 9, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Well, there's our second metaphor. And it's a little difficult to know exactly Paul's point here. Like, this is a metaphor that Paul quotes in another place as well. Jesus also quoted it. Probably what Paul is doing here when he sort of drops this little aphorism in is he's just saying, if you, you, you go a little bit of way down the Torah road, you're eventually going to have to go the whole way. 
You can't be a little bit pregnant and you can't be a little bit estranged from Jesus. You're either pregnant or you're estranged from Jesus. A little bit of wrong thinking and wrong practice leavens the whole lump. So I'm mixing a metaphors. Now we're in verse 10. I am confident, and Paul here finally starts to speak with a little bit of positivity, a little bit of optimism. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Now, here Paul is picking up on something that he's hinted at back in Galatians chapter 1, where he says, If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. See, there's somebody that's agitating. In all likelihood, Paul knows who the person is. Right? The Jewish community was a fairly small community, uh, and the Pharisaical community would have been smaller still. I mean, in all likelihood, Paul knows it's a guy named whatever, Josephus. But he doesn't name him. He just, this, is, this guy that's troubling you, he will have to pay the penalty for coming in after my work, after my hard work of raising up these small house churches. He said, man, you were doing really well. And this guy cut in line. This guy cut in line, and he's trying to get you to think in terms of the old wine, the old leaven, circumcision and uncircumcision, and, and these old ethnic identities. He says, not anymore, not in Jesus. Jesus has made a new way of access, new wine into new wineskins, into God's covenant community. Verse 11. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Apparently, one of the things that has been said by this person, um, who may well have been known by Paul, is, oh yeah, 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 Paul still teaches circumcision. Remember, these weren't in the days where you didn't have cell phones where you could just call up and check and say, hey, Paul, Paul, there's a guy down here, yeah, in, in, in Lystra, and he's saying that you also teach circumcision. Is that true? Or, let me just text Paul. Let me text him. No, no. People could literally come in behind and say, oh, no, Paul teaches what I teach. No, no, Paul advocates what I advocate. When Paul gets right down to the end of Galatians, just glance down at the, the second to the last verse of Galatians. Look at Galatians 6.17. He says, this is actually kind of funny. Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me any trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What's that, what's that a reference to? That's a reference to beatings. That's a reference to stonings. Paul says, okay, d don't try to... No. No, 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 no. I know. I have suffered persecution. If I'm still teaching persecution, then why when I go from town to town, village to village, hamlet to hamlet, am I being persecuted by the Jews for teaching? If I'm teaching what they're, the same thing they're saying, how come I'm being persecuted? He's here undermining the influence of this person that had come in behind him and was trying to cut in line and undermine the, apostle, uh, the apostleship and the ministry of Paul. Now he says in verse 12, I love what he says there at the end of verse 11, if that was the case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. The cross was, and Paul will pick this up later in Corinthians, he'll say that when we preach the cross, a crucified Messiah, it's a scandal to the Jews and it's folly to the Greeks. The, the cross is, there's a certain kind of offensive absurdity to the cross, right? That I, I am completely helpless, I am totally dependent on a crucified Jew for my salvation, for my saving. It, it, we live in a world today that has an offense toward the cross. 
People are perfectly happy in 2021 for you to be a religious person as long as you never say anything about it, as long as you just shut up, mind your own business. You can believe Martians, you can believe alien abductions, you can believe Jesus, whatever, it doesn't matter. And a lot of Christians have just compartmentalized and privatized their religious experience. Why? Because of the offense of the cross. It's offensive to people. People don't want to be told that they're sinners. People don't want to be told that they need to be rescued. People don't want to be told that they need to be saved. This is all highly offensive. And if it's highly offensive in 2021, for reasons of secularism, materialism, scientism, scientism, it was offensive in Paul's day because he was running directly at cross-purposes with Judaism and with the Gentiles. And so he says, look, if I'm still teaching this whole circumcision thing, then why do I have in my body the marks of persecution? Verse 12. As for those agitators, and this is the verse where Paul says the strongest thing that he probably says in any of his epistles. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Cut themselves. Here's our, here's our word, cut. This is why the, it's the importance of the cut in line. It's a purposeful play on words. This whole idea of if cut, they've cut in, and if they're into cutting, I wish they would just cut it all off. If holiness can be attained, if access can be attained to the family of God by cutting the tip off, well then what might we get if we cut the whole thing off? Mm. Now, pastors wouldn't talk like this nowadays, and Christians wouldn't generally talk like this. Like, yeah, if they're into that, just, just have them castrate themselves. What's really going on here is incredible. When Paul says this, he's writing to, and I just learned this recently, he's writing to churches in South Galatia, what we would call Turkey, and there was a goddess there named Sibeli. And one of the acts of worship in the uh, worship of this Galatian deity, or Lyconian deity, Sibeli, was to take yourself into a fevered, frenzy hysteria the climax of which was, and apologies here if I offend your finer sensibilities, but the, the, the climax of which was um, auto-castration. Castrate yourself as an act of devotion to Sibeli. So what Paul is actually doing here is quite fascinating. The idea of going the whole way would have been like within the vernacular and the parlance of the church to whom Paul is writing or the people to whom Paul is writing. But what Paul does is really incredible here, and he actually hints at this in Philippians as well. He's now saying that circumcision has lost its significance and it has become an almost pagan ritual. Now, that might strike you as a little like, whoa, 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 a little too far there, Pastor Asherick. But didn't Jesus suggest as much? When Jesus went into the temple, the temple, I mean, God had established the temple, God had established the sacrificial system, God had... And Jesus went in and said, what? Take all of this stuff out of here. You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. When you take the original symbol, the original meaning, and you pervert it, it becomes basically paganism. All of those goats and all of those bulls and all those things that were being sacrificed, God's not interested in sacrifice. I could show you literally a dozen texts right now in the Old Testament where God says, I don't want your sacrifices. Stop bringing your sacrifices to me. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus would say repeatedly, Go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Quoting Hosea 6.6. So if you take something that is divine, and it's beautiful, and it points to Jesus, and it's God-given, which the sacrificial system certainly was, and then you go away from all the things to which it points, and you just start doing it for its own sake, that's just paganism. 
That's just run-of-the-mill paganism. And if we're going to start imagining that the trimming of the male foreskin is some point of access to God, Paul's like, this is just paganism. And he has this fascinating little reference, seeming almost certain reference to Sibeli, who was a local goddess, the height of which worship to her at certain a certain festival was to auto-castrate for those that were in this frenzied Incredible. Paul's line of reasoning here is these people that have cut in on you, these people that are trying to drive you away from the way that we get access to the one family of God. He says, look, if a little bit of holiness is to be attained by a small amount of trimming, shall we say, well, how much holiness could be achieved if we trim the whole thing? And then, of course, the sort of undercurrent of this is if a male was castrated or auto-castrated, you couldn't, you couldn't reproduce, which is perfectly... Paul would be perfectly happy with no more reproduction of these kinds of agitators. Isn't this good stuff? Yeah, amen. So I'm not going to do the whole of chapter 5 because we've already gone quite a little bit here, but I, I do want to end on verse 13. I do want to end on verse 13. We'll pick this up in our, in our next series. We're under no rush here. We've got no timetable necessarily. I do want to just lead you to verse 13 to see where Paul goes because where Paul goes in verses 13 down to 26, and I can't wait to get into this, the next time we are together, is Paul reverts immediately back to that Exodus motif. Just right back to the Exodus. And you'll be able to see it. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be what? Free. That's Israel. That's Israel. You were called to be free. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You will have no other gods before me. And just a brief word on that. I know I've said this before, but there's some new visitors here. In the Ten Commandments, we often read these and translate these as these like positive, like these negative prohibitions. You will not kill. You will not steal. You will not. Well, according to Richard Davidson, who is knows the English language, he knows Hebrew better than I know English. He says that in the in the Hebrew language there is no like pos, there's no imperative negative. There, there is no construction where you have an imperative negative. What you do have in the Hebrew is this sort of promissory negative, which would be better translated like this. You will no longer. Which makes a lot of sense for Ellen White, who herself uh, did not speak Hebrew, was not a Hebrew scholar, but she had the insight to say, the audacity to say, a uh, hundred years before my time or Richard Davidson's time, that all of God's promise, all of God's commands are promises, and all of his biddings are enablings. So what's really going on there at Mount Sinai is that God's saying, all right, you're not going to do this stuff anymore. What he's saying is, you're now a free people. You no longer have to have other gods. You no longer have to break Sabbath. You no longer have to live always looking over your shoulder wondering if somebody's... You don't have to... This is how you live as free people. The law was given as an instruction manual to a free people on how to live as free people. Do you know how I know this? Look at what Paul will do in the very next verse. So he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. That's the language of Exodus. Watch this. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. We'll circle back to this the next time we're together. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Well, what does that sound like? It sounds like faith working through love, which is what we just talked about. 
faithfulness working through love. Now watch what he does in verse 14. For all of Torah is fulfilled in keeping one command. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18, which Jesus quoted himself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is fascinating. You know that Paul has the Exodus in mind here because he says, you have been called to be free. Live like free people. Well, how do we live like free people? We live peaceably with all the people that are around us. We love our neighbor as ourselves, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, whether male or female, whether this language or that language, this nationality or that nationality, this race or that race. We love and we live in harmony and peace with other people. We are free in the Messiah and we are learning how to live as free people. Amen? We are learning how to live as free people. To state the obvious here, if we're learning to live as free people, it must mean that we do not yet have it figured out. If I'm learning calculus, I don't know calculus. If I'm learning archaeology, I don't yet know archaeology. I'm learning it. So if I'm learning to live as free, it means that all the while I'm trusting that my point of access to God's family and to God's table is not through my faithfulness. Amen. It's through the fact that Jesus has already gotten me access. How do we know this? Because the Passover lamb was slain more than a month before they get to Sinai. That's how they got out of Egypt. They got out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb. They went through the Red Sea by the power of God. And now they're there. Now they're a free people at the base of Sinai and God's going to teach them this is how you live as free people. Not in order to be free, but because you are free. Amen. And so Paul is absolutely beside himself, though there is some positivity here. I do appreciate the optimism there in verse 10. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. And that this guy that's telling you to cut stuff off, maybe he'll just cut the whole thing off and stop reproducing and leave you all alone. What's the message for us here? What's the takeaway? I think the takeaway is that we live in a society and in a world that's no less complicated than the one into which Paul was writing. Uh, I don't think it was more complicated. I think that's sort of the, um, you know, ethnocentric and sort of egocentric way we sort of always view oh, it's more this life is more complicated. No, life's always been complicated. It's just tricky. Life is tricky. And Paul is saying... We have to learn how to live and to exist in complicated situations and circumstances, complicated relationships. I mean, in the days of Paul, you had the whole imperial cult and emperor worship and Rome always looking over your shoulder. It was a mess. It was tricky. It was tricky to be a Jew. If it was tricky to be a Jew, what was it to be a Jewish Christian who gets antagonism now not only from the Gentile world, but from the Jewish world as well? It was tricky. And so Paul is saying, don't be obnoxious. Don't use your liberty as an opportunity to flex your muscles and, and show everybody how free... No. Serve one another. Live in peace with one another. Draw close to one another. Don't itemize people and evaluate people on the basis of externalities like religion or race or ethnicity or nationality or economics. No. No, 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 no. All of that's behind us now. We are all one in the Messiah. We are all one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in the Messiah. And what we're doing in church, and this is Paul's real burden in the whole book of Galatians, what we're doing in church is learning how to live as a unified people. Different people, we're different families, different backgrounds, different circumstances, different economics, different nationalities, different cultures. We're different. 
But what we're learning to do is to live as the multinational, multi-ethnic, socially diverse family of God. Because God doesn't have two families. He doesn't have Jews and Gentiles. He doesn't have us and them. God has just one family. Us. So we need to learn how to live in unity. How to learn to live as free people. But don't ever think for a moment that in our learning to be the best versions of ourselves, that that becomes the point of access to God. The point of access to God is the Messiah's faithfulness. Amen? That's how we get access to the table. And now we're just learning, like young kids are, you know, in the daycare, how to play nicely with one another. And do I need to state the obvious here? That we're living in a world, a political climate, uh, an economic climate, where it's getting harder and harder to play nicely with people because of competing ideologies, competing ideas, competing political constructions. If Paul were alive today, there's not a doubt in my mind that he would say, what is this to you? What, you are the Messiah's people. You can have your strong political or economic uh, or, or social convictions. No problem. But, but when you come together as the church of the living God, or when you're living next door to your non-Christian neighbor, your non-believing neighbor, you orient yourself as Messiah oriented himself to the world as faithfulness working through love. Because at the end of the day, all this other stuff matters not at all. The stuff that matters is the stuff we're talking about here. It's the Messiah, it's His goodness, it's His faithfulness, and it's the life that He has called us to live in Him. Amen? And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do. The world is going off the rails. And as Christians, we do we say, do we not, do we... And I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers here. I think it's often situational and contextual. But what I know for sure is that God has called us to live as a free people. And where Paul will go with this is he'll say, here's all the works of the flesh, and here's the fruit of the Spirit. Live according to the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll get into the next time we're together. Because there's the coolest thing in the fruit of the Spirit that I'm almost sure that most of you have not seen. And I'll just give you a little hint. There are nine fruits nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, divided into three groups of three. Here's a little homework assignment for you. See if you can go identify what the difference is between the first three things that Paul says, the, second th the first three characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, the second three characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, and the third. Because there's three triads. It's a triad of triads. And it's fascinating what Paul is saying there. He's not just like listing a bunch of... Uh, yeah, tell him to be nice and tell him to like put candies out. And No, no. He's saying a very specific thing there. How do we live in a complicated, complex, sometimes hostile world? How do we do that? Well, Paul's going to tell us how to do that. But right now, for today, we can say, God has called us to live as free people. Amen? Amen. You are free. For freedom, Christ has set you free.